Let's cultivate our motivation and reflect for a minute on the disadvantages of the self-preoccupied thought, how it makes us spin around ourselves and makes everything regarding ourselves seem so incredibly important so that we actually wind up more miserable. And contemplate how the self-centered thought lies behind the creation of negative karma, how it, it impels us to act in harmful ways and in ways that bring about our own as well as others' misery. And how the self-centered thought prevents us from having time to practice or energy to practice. And so, therefore, is a big impediment to progressing along the path. And so really see this self-centered thought not as your friend and protector, but as your enemy that makes you miserable. And develop a very strong wish to counteract it and not let it rule your world. Then think that you'll dedicate your life and your life energy (coughs) towards being of benefit to other sentient beings and to benefit them in the most effective way thereby to become fully enlightened. So make that determination, that aspiration. Developing this wish to be a benefit to others, seeing the disadvantages of being stuck in our own self-preoccupation is very important. But we have to contemplate the faults of this self-preoccupation in a correct way. Otherwise, we get all tangled up and confused. So yesterday we were saying that one way we get tangled up is we start to feel guilty for being selfish, and that's certainly not very useful. Another way we get tangled up is thinking that every time we have a preference for something, that it is selfish, and that therefore we should not have any preferences for anything. 
and just do what other people want. Okay? We go to that extreme. Yeah? That every time, every preference I want is bad, it's selfish. So I should just not have any preferences and whatever anybody wants to do, then because I cherish them more than myself, I do it. So somebody wants to rob a bank, I help them. Okay? Somebody wants to euthanize their animal, I help them. Somebody wants to uh, tell off somebody in their workplace and uh, scapegoat somebody who harmed them, and I help them. Somebody has a substance abuse problem, they have no money to buy their substance, out of compassion, I give them money. that cherishing others? No, it's not cherishing others. Okay. So we have to be very careful here and really understand what giving up self-centeredness means and what cherishing others means. Other we, otherwise, we get very confused and we think that being a bodhisattva means being a people pleaser. <coughs> My friend doesn't want me to meditate. They want me to go out to the movies. So I give up my meditation and I go to the movies and watch Sex and Violence. Many people do that, you know. Oh, my housemate, my partner, you know, they, they don't want me to meditate. They feel neglected. They want to go out to the movies. So I give up my drama practice. Is that wise? Is that beneficial for sentient beings in the long term? Okay. So we have to really think very deeply, you know, what it means to benefit somebody and what it means to be self-centered. Okay. Because every time we have a preference, you know, that doesn't mean it's self-centered. Because, you know, Buddhas do have discriminating wisdom which means that as people who aspire to be Buddhas, we have to cultivate our discriminating wisdom. Okay. And so we have to be able to clearly see, you know, what is virtuous, what is non-virtuous. Yeah. What is skillful, what isn't skillful, what's wholesome, what's not wholesome, so that we can have, you know, clear values and then act according to those values, even if somebody else doesn't like it. Okay? Because in the long run, you know, standing firm on our own values is going to be a lot more beneficial than getting involved in other people's trips. Okay? So, you know, if other people are thinking clearly and they have good values, and so on, and they have some wisdom, and they give you advice about what to do, or they want you to do something. Those people we should listen to. Okay? But other people who don't have good values, who are lacking in understanding about karma, yeah, who don't, you know, who are confused themselves, it isn't necessarily compassionate to do what they want us to do. 
because often what they want us to do is, you know, something under confusion. Mm-hmm. Okay? And so, you know, I look at my teachers, and my teachers have very firm ideas about, you know, what they're going to do and what they're not going to do. <laughs> okay? And they're very clear about that. You can't push them around. And they, and they don't go, oh, well, poor this one wants me to do that. Yeah, sure. You know. No, they, they really, you know, think very clearly. And they have, uh, they say no when they don't want to do something, when they don't think it's beneficial. Okay. So, um, you know, don't think that being compassionate <coughs> and giving self-centeredness means saying yes to everything. Okay. Like I said, if it's somebody who's wise who gives you instructions, yeah, say yes. But think about it then, too. But if it's somebody who's not so wise, then, you know, be careful. Because the thing is, if we try and live our life the way we think other people think we should live it, we're going to get very confused because everybody has a different idea of how we should live our life. And so if our objective is to please people, we're going to get really tangled up because one action pleases one person, but the same action displeases another person. So what are we going to do? Does that mean that we're selfish no matter what because we can't please everybody? Okay. So, being compassionate doesn't necessarily mean that you please everybody. It means we really have to stand firm on what we know is good in the long term. So, they always talk about, you know, short-term benefit and long-term benefit. So, there's again four points between these two. If something is of short-term benefit and long-term benefit, do it. <clears throat> okay. If something is of short-term benefit but not long-term benefit, don't do it. Because you get some short-term benefit, but in the long term, it's not going to be good. If something is, a, is not of short-term benefit and is of long-term benefit. In other words, if you have to go through some something uncomfortable for long-term benefit, do it. It's worth it. And if something is of neither short-term nor long-term benefit, useless. Don't do it. Okay? So we have to stop and really think over these different things. And I always come back to, to the, the example of parents and, uh, you know, thinking of what my parents had to go through to raise me. And, you know, parents know that they have to look out for the long-term benefit of their child. And if they just give their child, what the, you know, some short-term benefit, that actually they create a spoiled brat who doesn't have any life skills to deal with frustration. 
because they're used to getting everything they want. So you often know as a parent that out of compassion you have to say no quite strongly to your child when they're acting in an, in, in an inappropriate way. Because if you just give in to the child with everything they want, you know, the child doesn't know how to function in the world and get along with others. They expect that everybody's going to do what they want them to do because their parents always did. So, you know, many situations that I look back and I used to complain about my parents saying no, I look back now and I say, oh, it was actually quite good. You know, they, they taught me to deal with some frustration. Yeah, they also taught me how to <laughs> go around the back door. <laughs> yeah, but it also, you know, it also involved teaching me how to work hard, you know. And that if I wanted something, I had to work hard for it. It wasn't just going to fall into my lap because, you know, I was some kind of extraordinary child simply because I was their child. No, that did not go over big in my family. Okay? So, you know, it's the same thing, you know, in, in cultivating a bodhisattva attitude of compassion. Now, compassion is not wimpy at all. I think it takes much more courage to be compassionate than to just do what other people want. Yeah. And I think it takes much more courage to be compassionate than to be angry or to be violent. You know, People think, oh, people who fight and beat somebody up, they're so courageous. You know, I think that's actually rather foolish and rather cowardice, cowardly. You know, that it takes much more courage to deal with our own mind and get our mind in a balanced, wholesome state than it does to forget about our mind and just indulge in what, whatever emotion happens to pop up into our mind and act it out. Yeah, so if that, that emotion that pops up is anger and we want to beat somebody up just going along with that, what good does that do? It's not courage. It's really foolishness. Okay? So we really have to think deeply in different situations. What does it mean to be kind? What does it mean to be selfish? So it's not easy. It takes a lot of thought, a lot of contemplation to get, to get some clarity in our mind. Another thing about giving up self-centeredness is it doesn't mean punishing ourselves. It doesn't mean hating ourselves and uh, depriving ourselves. Okay? So it's not about some kind of ascetic trip, some kind of, you know, deprivation to... Uh, inf- you know, to tame my attachment. The the Buddha tried that. didn't work. He did ascetic practices for six years and realized he still hadn't developed the wisdom that led to liberation. Okay? So we tame our attachment through wisdom, not through self-deprivation. Now, having said that, 
somebody's going to think, oh, good, she said I don't have to deprive myself. Therefore, everything I want to do, everything that feels good physically, I'm going to do. Because after all, she said, don't deprive yourself. Well, that's not so wise either. Okay. Because again, you know, if we follow every lustful thought, if we follow every mind of attachment, we're never going to tame our attachment. It's like drinking salt water. It's just going to increase. Okay. So we don't want to deprive ourselves with some kind of self-hatred, you know. And we don't want to indulge our senses either because that doesn't get us any closer to liberation. So again, what we need here is wisdom, which means we have to sit down and think about things and go through this very murky, confusing process of things not being so clear. (laughs) Yeah? Because... You know, conventional reality is messy. (laughs) Samsara is messy. Things are not so clear and definitive and black and white. And conditions are changing all the time. Okay? But the main point here in seeing the faults of the self-centeredness is... You know, when we look at the negative karma we've created, times when we've taken things that haven't been freely given or, you know, slept around indiscriminately or lied or scapegoated or created turmoil by our speech or, you know, any number of things like that, to see that behind all of those things lay the self-centered mind. Okay? That the self-centered mind was the one that was just saying, oh, go for your own happiness. Now, go for it. Okay? Yeah. So the self-centered mind really lies behind all this kind of stuff. Now, why can't we get to the cushion to do our practice? So many people come to me. I really want to practice. I just, I can't get to the cushion, you know. I'm just too busy. That's the self-centered mind. Everybody has 24 hours, you know. Who is it who decides how to use our 24 hours? You know, okay, if you were in a prison camp and somebody was, you know, going to shoot you if you didn't do what they wanted you to do 24 hours a day, then, okay, you know, you can't sit and do your meditation practice. (laughs) But that's not really the situation for most of us, is it? So whenever we say, I have to, you know that phrase, but I have to do X, Y, and Z, we should change it and say, I choose to do X, Y, and Z. So if doing X, Y, and Z is going to take up a lot of time so that I don't have time to go to Dharma class, I don't have time to do retreats, I can't do a daily practice, I can't even sit and read a book, you know, I can't do anything to deepen my practice, because I have to do X, Y, and Z. Okay. 
then ask yourself if you really have to do it. Yeah, do we really have to do those things? But I have to go to work. Really? Aren't you choosing to go to work? You can choose not to go to work. There are certain consequences if you don't work. But still, you, cho- you can choose not to do it. Nobody's making you. Okay. So, you know, we have to look at all the things where we say, I have to, and really say, I choose to. You know, I choose to go to work because going to work, you know, is uh, brings me more benefit than not going to work. Okay, and so that's based on your standard of benefit. Somebody else might say, not going to work and doing my Dharma practice is going to be a more benefit than going to work, and that's their choice. But I think we really have to accept responsibility in our lives and not continually fall back on, but I have to. We choose to. There's always that choice. Okay? And so when we start saying, I choose to, then we see that we have to take responsibility for our lives. That we can't just say, oh, but my parents want me to do this, society expects me to do that, you know, I got this education so I better do X, Y, and Z, or, you know, this, that, and the other thing. No, we have to really think clearly and make choices based on wisdom, not just on automatic. Because often when we make choices on automatic, we're just, it's self-centered thought running the show. Because, you know, doing, going on automatic is kind of easy. Then we don't have to deal with other people saying to us, well, what are you doing? But even when you make any choice, even on automatic, somebody else is going to come and say to you, what are you doing? Not everybody's going to like what you do. And, you know, what's so bad with somebody saying to us, what are you doing? Yeah, what's so bad? If we know what we're doing and why we're doing it, then we, then we tell them. Yeah, we don't have to get defensive about it. Yeah, if we've thought clearly about a decision, we tell them. They may agree, they may not agree. But the important thing is that we have to think clearly and make wise decisions based on compassion, not based on attachment to reputation, which is what people-pleasing is, or attachment to praise. You know, that's also people-pleasing. Okay? So while bodhisattvas do want to please sentient beings, they please sentient beings by looking out for their long-term benefit. Not necessarily by giving them what they want in that moment. Now, does that mean that every time somebody wants something 
and you don't want to do it, that you just say to them, no. No, that doesn't mean that either. Because sometimes our not wanting to do something is not, is you know, for our short-term benefit, but not for the long-term benefit of somebody else. So then we have to, you know, go through the obstacle and rise to the occasion as best as we can to work for the benefit of somebody else. Okay? So each situation is very different. We have to consider each situation. You know, there, there's no manual on the internet of every possible situation we're going to encounter on life with uh, a column of checked do it or don't do it. <laughs> you know? We have to think about these things ourselves. It's quite important. Okay? But, still, what we have to look out for is what we had in verse 52. As for me, I want to transfer or infect others with all of my suffering and loss. And whatever excellences others may have, I covet them for myself. That is clearly self-centered. Okay, isn't it? Yeah. So when I have loss, when I have suffering, when I have grief, when I have a problem, I want to infect everybody else. I want to give it to everybody else. I want to bring them down to my level or whimper enough so that they fix my problem. Okay, something along that line. Just thinking, whimpering. Whimpering. It's a good word, isn't it? Yeah. We usually think of babies whimpering. Do we ever whimper? How about whining? Yeah, whining. We do that. Complaining. Nagging. Okay, (laughs) so, you know, our own suffering, our own loss, seems so um, monumental to us that we just infect everybody else with it. They should stop what they're doing and pay attention to my problem. Now, somebody is going to say, but on the other hand, some people don't know how to pay attention when they have a problem. You know, they ignore their problem. They're not feeling well, and they don't tune into what their body's saying, so they just plunge ahead and they get sicker. Or they, you know, they don't see that they're tired, they don't rest, and they keep going until they collapse. Yeah. So, you know, shouldn't we be sensitive to our own problems? So, so you see here how we can get very tangled up. So there's a way of being mindful and being aware of our own problems, but without self-indulging about them. Yeah. And this is where we get hooked, you know, uh, where we get very confused and things get cloudy. Because often when we're aware of, let's say, not feeling well or being tired or whatever, then we go immediately to self-pity, to this is a national disaster, everybody's got to, you know, 
help me, blah, blah, blah. Okay? <clears throat> or we go to the other extreme of like ignore it and push through it. Okay? So again, neither of those is, is wise. Yeah? We've got to pay attention to our body, pay attention to our mood. Yeah? Do what we need to do to stay healthy, but without self-indulging and without letting our self-centered mind start spinning around our condition. Because as soon as our self-centered mind starts spinning around our condition, then our condition makes us more and more unhappy and impinges on our ability to do things that we can do. Because we can become so super sensitive about everything. Okay? So this whole thing of balance, of knowing how to take care of ourselves, but how not to indulge. And it's not an easy thing. Most of us fall to one extreme or another. So it's something we play with, with time. Yeah. Okay. So be aware, but not self-indulging. It's like you might wake up, oh, I'm, a ba- I'm in a bad mood. Okay. Then, then the thing is, well, what do I do when I'm in a bad mood? What's our usual MO when we're in a bad mood? Now, how, do, how do you act when, you're, when you wake up in your bad mood? What do you do? In the... Cat, so to speak. What? I kick the cat. You kick the cat. <laughs> okay. Well, not really, but you know, I'm just not kind of like. What other people do? Stay in bed. Yeah. Stay in bed. Yeah. I take refuge in my bed. Okay. What other people do? Somehow manage to let someone know. You let you manage to let someone know. In what kind of way do you... Oh, you, you let them know you're in a bad mood. Oh, yeah. Spread it around a little. Yeah. Yeah, you don't want to keep everything to yourself. I want to be transparent. Yeah. Okay. So, you know... We can see we have our usual way of dealing with our bad moods. And are these always the most effective way? No. Okay. If I may then listen to Dharma teachings, it's okay. Well, not if somebody else is counting on you to be somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) You know, if if you're supposed to drive your friend to a a doctor's appointment and you don't show up because you're in a bad mood and you have the covers over your head. Okay. So, um, you know, kind of what I think is, is very helpful to do in a bad mood is come back to bodhicitta, you know, and come back to the faults of self-centeredness, the benefits of cherishing others, the kindness of others. You know, I've already dedicated my life to be a benefit. And this bad mood is impermanent. You know, I don't need to make such a big deal out of it. Yeah. It's like having a, being in a bad mood is not the end of the world. I can endure it. It's going to pass. I don't have to spread it around. 
Okay, so learning how to deal with with a bad mood. You're aware you're in a bad mood, but you're also able to work with it, so that your bad mood doesn't control you, and so that it doesn't, you know, impinge on on everybody else. Yeah. You know, Venerable, something that I've found in the last while that um, that works is is first that I mean, mm-hmm. noticing. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then drawing it in. This mm-hmm. is really self-centered. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my mind can still get hooked. And so then I'm watching, like, how hooked you are. And, you know, now I will often turn to the Buddha, whoever, Tara, Chinrizi, and say, really, please, um, <laughs> I know I'm responsible for this, and, I mean, maybe I'll say mantra, or you know, like I'm pushing my intention farther out, mm-hmm. and then it works. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm kind of amazed by this. Like, you know, like a little bit unbelieving. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does work. But it does work. And then I see, oh, it did shift. Yeah. When I wasn't looking somehow, you know. Yeah, yeah. It just passed. Yeah. You know, if you do meditation, you know, just even, you don't have to even sit on your cushion, but you just think of one of the Buddhas and like coming into you and saying the mantra, you know, things shift. Yeah. But we have to try and do that. But like you said, most of us are skeptical that it would really work. It's like... And not be superstitious. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, like, I'm not, yeah, like, not, it's not magic. No, it's not magic. Yeah. There's a cause and effect relationship there. Because when you're thinking of a Buddha and a Buddha's qualities, when you're think, when you're imagining light coming into you, when you're turning to your spiritual practice and your spiritual values, you are changing your mind. Yeah. So, of course, it's going to work. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when I wake up in the morning, and I know I'm in a bad mood, I'll um, sort of get overcome with fear. Mm-hmm. And um, if I think about uh, my life and how lucky I am to have it, mm-hmm. um, and then I'm able to kind of move on to um, um, the things that I'm acquiring. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So sometimes when you wake up in a bad mood, your mind goes to fear, you know, because it seems like the world's crumbling when you're in a bad mood. And so then what you do is think of precious human life and everything that you have going for you and how fortunate you are. And then that stops the fear. It stops the exaggeration in the mind of the world is crumbling because you see that the opposite is true and you have so much going for you. And then you're able to turn your mind to your kids and everything else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What I've learned is that, um, I mean, we all know it's going to pass, but what I've learned is that a bad mood is so ephemeral. If you just imagine if you were 
walking out the door, walking down your sidewalk, on you know, on to start your daily grind, grumble, grumble, and right in front of you, a child gets hit by a car. Your bad mood will be gone instantly, mm-hmm. and you will be subsumed in this crisis that you need to deal with. I think, and. And people here have said really good things, and especially Susan, this is a much better practitioner than I am. But I think, don't mind give it too much importance. Mm-hmm. And yeah. 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 I mean, see, that's the, the thing, and why bad moods and self-centeredness go so much together. Because mm-hmm. we wake up in a bad mood, or we have a bad mood, and then the mind spins around it. I'm in a bad mood. I feel lousy. Nothing's going right. I'm in a bad mood. I'm grown. Nobody likes me. Nothing. Nobody appreciates me. Everything. And and you know. And the self-centered thought just keeps going like this, right around it, making it worse and worse and worse and worse. And what you're saying is like somebody gets hit by a car. Your mind can't pay attention to yourself anymore. Yeah, you have to pay attention to somebody else's suffering. So I think that that, that's true, that the more we practice, we don't have to wait for people to get hit by cars for us to stop our bad mood. It's like, you know, you just look out in samsara and there is so, you know, here's sentient beings getting born and reborn under the force of afflictions and karma. That is horrible. You know, how can I sit here and pamper my bad mood and indulge my bad mood when there's this grief? You know, I want to do something about it to help. Yeah, not in a panic of you know, I've got to do something. Help, Sandy Bang. You know, not like that. But you know, to to go in a way that we know we need to go. Yeah, without getting stuck in the quicksand of our self-centeredness. In addiction, and substance abuse in general, self-pity is the fuel that keeps it going. Oh, yeah. And so that's one of those things that has to be learned, is to reach out to somebody else the minute you see it coming on and go help somebody else. Yeah. You know, and and so it's kind of like a cause, it's this cause and effect thing that gets learned, and it's the only way out that mm-hmm. I know of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I even, that's the only way I know how. Yeah. Is to help somebody else. Right. Okay. So you're saying that the, when you get stuck in self-pity, the only way you know to get out of it is to help somebody else. And I think there's some verse by Mother Teresa, maybe somebody knows it, but, but what she says, you know, when I feel lonely, may I find somebody to care for? Mm-hmm. You know, our self-centered thought is, when I feel lonely, may somebody care for me? But she puts it on the other way. May I reach out and care for somebody else? Yeah. And His Holiness talks about that a lot too, you know. When people suffer from low self-esteem, when they suffer from self-pity, he recommends compassion. Now a lot of us say, but I'm in touch with my feelings. (laughs) You know, I've got to be in touch with my feelings. You're telling me to, you know... Ignore my feelings. Well, you know, when our feelings are based on self-centeredness and our feelings are not based on, you know, 
when we're deliberately cultivating those bad feelings by, re, by paying attention to them in, in an incorrect way, well, yes, we are telling you not to pay attention to your feelings because you don't know how to pay attention to them properly, so you're making them worse. Yeah. So the thing is, you know, when, instead of getting stuck to reach out and be a benefit, okay, so... Uh, but again, here, you know, we, we're such extremists because you see people who are so intent on benefiting others that their own family is a mess. Okay? You know, that they, they can't deal with their own feelings, so they're busy, you know, helping others and not looking at what's going on inside of themselves and the mess that they're leaving behind. Okay, so we're not talking about that because you gotta, we've got to be aware of our feelings. We're not helping others to mask our own feelings. We're completely aware. You know, I'm in a bad mood. The antidote is to get out of myself and go help somebody. So we're not doing it as a way to ignore our feelings blindly or negate what we're feeling. Yeah, we're quite aware of what we're doing and why. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I have a question about kind of intellectually understanding this versus being able to really apply it. And mm-hmm. I've encountered a number of people in my life where they intellectually understand, and I'm sure myself to some degree too, and intellectually understand that, well, this is a feeling and I should be over it. So they kind of push it aside, mm-hmm. but it's still festering in there mm-hmm. on a different level. And later it blows up into this big thing. And I was wondering if, uh, you know, like, I mean, it could be weeks later, a month later, yeah. whenever suddenly that, that same thing that, you know, you think you sort of dissolve, that people can let go of, yeah. pops back up. And if there's any way, besides just being understanding, to maybe help people you're interacting with, if you, if you sense that starting to happen, or if they seem to be really pushing things Mm-hmm. You know, that need to be negotiated. How can we do that well and not condescending anymore? Okay. So when we ourselves or somebody that we're close to is, uh, you know, something comes up, we have some intellectual dharma knowledge and we tell ourselves to get over it, but what we're actually doing is putting a cap on it and not dealing with it, and then later it comes up in an explosive way. Okay, so I think first of all, dealing with ourselves is when we've done that enough, then we realize, oh, that's that's not working. (laughs) You know, (laughs) that that I have the intellectual understanding. That's true, but you know, I'm just using it to 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 push down what I'm feeling, and I really need to take it out and apply the antidote and deal with it. Okay. And so when we get into that, you know, if we're getting into some kind of habit of stuffing the stuff away, to, to really see, you know, be honest with ourselves, hey, that technique is not working. Yeah. You know, in terms of, of being around people who, who do that, um, you know, we can try and encourage them to take things out and look at them when they're still small. But we can't control their minds. You know, hopefully... If that technique doesn't work enough times, you know, they'll realize that stuffing it doesn't work. Now, sometimes you may have to go th- through it with them, that they suppress it, then a few weeks later they explode, and it's worse than before. Then, after they get over all that and the situation calms down again, 
then bring up the discussion and say, oh, I observed back then it was still small, then it didn't get dealt with, it came out really big here, you know, do you see that pattern in yourself? And then maybe that person will come to have some understanding that they do. Certainly it would be nice if we could crawl inside other people and, you know, kind of rearrange the wires. (laughs) You know, so that they notice all of their problems as clearly as we notice their problems. (laughs) It'd be so helpful if they did, really. Okay, verse 53. But you share and give to others all of the happiness which belongs to you. And whatever sufferings others may have, you cultivate the attitude, may they be my own. So this is talking about the taking and giving practice. Okay, but you share and give with others all of the happiness which belongs to you. And whatever suffering others may have, you cultivate the attitude, may they be my own. So here it's talking first about love, giving happiness, and second about compassion, taking on suffering. Personally speaking, I find it much better when doing the taking and giving meditation to take first. You know, I can't give them happiness if I haven't taken away their suffering. Okay? So I think it's, uh, I find it much easier to do uh, taking, you know, imagining taking on others' suffering and thinking, okay, I'll bear it so that they'll be free. And then on top of that, giving away body possessions and merit to them. It could be that maybe why they sometimes teach the giving part first and then the taking is that giving sometimes is easier. Oh, yeah, I can give my body possessions and merit. I'm giving, 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 you know? Kind of, yeah, I can give. But take somebody else's suffering? No way. Okay? So it could be because, you know, often we feel like the giving is easier. Maybe. Okay? Um, so, so there's some verses in... Uh, in the Guide to a Bodhisattva's Way of Life that concern this, that I thought I would just go over. Actually, if you're in a bad mood, read this book. <laughs> yeah. This book is better than any medicine for bad moods. Okay. Okay. So... Okay, so regarding giving, there's one verse in here uh, where Shanti Deva says, If I give this, what will I have left to enjoy? Such selfish, thi- selfish thinking is the way of ghosts. If I enjoy this, what shall I have left to give? Such selfless thinking is the quality of the divine beings. Beautiful, isn't it? Because, okay. If I give this, what shall I have left to enjoy? Okay. Such selfish thinking is the way of ghosts. Our mind often feels this way. You know, oh, if I give this away, then I won't have it. And I might need it. I won't be able to enjoy it because I've given it away. 
So our mind gets quite tight and miserly and stingy and fearful. And then we collect things that we never use because we're afraid of giving them away because someday we may need them and we don't want to lack them when we need them. Okay. Testimony to the truth of this is look at our cupboards and closets and dressers. <laughs> and every and basements, you know. And what what we have that we never use, that we don't need, but we can't bring ourselves to give it away. Do you have things like that? Lots of things like that. <laughs> One time at DFF we had this little exercise where people were to go home and clean out just one closet or one dresser. Not even everything in their home. Just one thing. And take out what they haven't used in the last year and give it away. And then we checked back the next week. And it was very interesting. Some people forgot the exercise. (laughs) (laughs) Some people... God home. There was this one woman who was going through her stuff. And I found this T-shirt that I got when I was in Mexico ten years ago, and I haven't used it. I, in fact, I even forgot I had it. But once I saw it, and it made me remember my trip to Mexico. I didn't want to give it away, you know. Even though she had forgotten totally that she had it. Yeah. And, I mean, this is so true of us, isn't it? Stuff that we don't even know that we have, we wouldn't miss it all if it weren't there. But when we notice it's there, all of a sudden, we can't give it away. Okay. So this is the mind of ghosts, of, you know, hungry ghosts who suffer, who are born in that way due to their own miserliness. They can't share, they can't give. So they're born as beings who are constantly hungry, constantly thirsty, running around trying to get what they need, never satisfied. And everything they need turns into pus and blood or gook before they can get it. And you can see how related that is to a miserly state of mind. Yeah? Okay? So... And then other people, they they cleaned it out, and the bag got as far as their front door, but no further. Somebody else had made it into his trunk, but it never got to, you know, the, the charity he was going to take it to. It was very interesting to see what happened, you know. And we were all laughing at ourselves and our foibles. Yeah. Through, through seeing this. I think some of you may have been there during this. <laughs> yeah? And, uh, and just how, how stingy and our mind can become for things that we don't need at all, that we're never going to use. And then, meanwhile, there are people in this country or other places in the world that can use those things. Okay? So... You know, when it says, 
if I give this, what shall I have left to enjoy? That's that mind. I give it, I won't have it to enjoy, to use. So such selfish thinking is the way of ghosts. If I enjoy this, what will I have left to give? If I keep this for myself, if I enjoy it with self-centeredness, if I use it in an indulging way, then what am I going to have to practice generosity with? And practicing generosity is one of the far-reaching attitudes. It's one of the basic practices that establish a cause to have a precious human life. So practicing generosity is incredibly important, you know, for the benefit of having a precious human life, for attaining liberation and nirvana. Okay? So it's a very important practice. And so if we think, if I use this for myself, then what am I going to have to practice generosity with? I won't have anything. So then I'm going to miss out on creating all that good karma. I'm going to miss out on being a benefit to sentient beings. So that way of thinking is the way of thinking of divine beings because their minds really care about others. Their minds really care about cause and effect, the law of karma and its effects. Okay. So does that mean that everything we get, we can't use, we should give away? No, we shouldn't go to that extreme either. If we get something, use it, but use it for the benefit of others. Okay. We do the mandala offering all the time. Many times a day we do the mandala offering. Okay. In the mandala offering, we are imagining offering the entire universe and everything in it to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. So then, what we have that we label mine, actually, we've given to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Unless we've been doing our mandala offering and saying we're giving it, but we haven't really given it. Yeah. Mount Meru and the sun and the moon and all these treasures of humans, gods, I give to you, Buddha. In name only, because I'm going to keep them. <laughs> okay, when you do the mandala offer, you have to really give and feel like these things are no longer mine. The three jewels are allowing me to use them, so I should use them carefully. If I'm using something that belongs to the three jewels, I should use it respectfully and carefully, and not with a self-centered mind. Okay, so we use that, you know, if, there, if we have things and they're useful and we need them to do the various work and projects we're engaged in or we use them to benefit others, fine, you know. But we do it with that kind of attitude, not with, you know, this is mine, you can't have it. I'm not giving it away. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, you know, this, it's very helpful to think, you know, I've already given these things away. So why am I clinging so, on to them so much? I've already given them away when I had to give the mandala offering. Okay. And in the mandala offering, we've also given away our body. Okay. 
So if I've given away my body, you know, why am I clinging onto it as mine, as this precious thing that needs to be so indulged? And we've also given away in the mandala offering all the people we're attached to. So that that helps us, you know. Then they're not mine. I'm hanging on to them. If if you've ever dealt with uh, someone who's died of state and you go into their through all their belongings and you see that that's all left behind in some areas there's you know way too many shoes there's way too many this or that or the other bags and boxes full of things that haven't been looked at in years and you have to deal with disposing of all the the, the state items and you realize that this is everybody's life and we accumulate a bunch of stuff and if we were more mindful we could dispose of a lot a lot of it while we're still around, you know. Yeah. And then it makes it a lot easier for the person who's killing the Right. <laughs> makes it easier for the person who has to go through our stuff. But it also enables us to create so much good karma by being generous while we're alive. Because we're going to separate from this stuff anyway. So we might as well be generous while we're alive and create some good karma, which will come with us to the future life. So uh, your next session, you know, when you're doing the bowing, you can focus specifically on all my stinginess, all my miserliness, all my attachment. You know, I'm bowing to purify that. And when you're down, all this light coming into you, purifying all of that. And when you're walking, uh, the serpentine walking, uh, chanting Namo Amitabha, think that you are making offerings to sentient beings and Buddhas. Okay? So bring what we've talked about in teachings right into those practices as you're doing them. And when you make offerings to sentient beings and Buddhas, think of them as being more beautiful than the actual object is. It's not like I'm going to give my old pair of sneakers. <laughs> you know, you make them very beautiful. 